Wake up, America. It's Morning Air with John Morales. Si, senor. Sarah Tafoya. Hey, it's my mom. Mama. And Glenn Leverins. This is Morning Air on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. It's Monday, February 26, 2024. Good morning and welcome back to another edition of Morning Air. I'm John Morales along with Glenn Leverins and studio producer Sarah Tafoya. Thanks so much for joining us. It's good to be with you early on this Monday in the second week of Lent here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. I hope you had a great weekend and can you believe it? It was the last weekend of February. Wow. Time really is flying by. Want to bring in Glenn and Sarah. Hey, Glenn, what are a few of the big stories making headlines on this Monday morning? Well, big primary election Saturday in South Carolina there, John. About a 20-point win for former President Trump over Nikki Haley, former governor of that state. Haley says she's going to stay in the race. They have the right to a real choice. Not a Soviet-style election with only one candidate. And then uh, after the victory in South Carolina over the weekend, uh, former President Trump told the voters he just wants to get Biden out of office. And we're going to be up here on November 5th, and we're going to look at Joe Biden, and we're going to look him right in the eye. He's destroying our country, and we're going to say, Joe, you're fired. Get out. Get out, Joe. You're fired. And on the Democratic side, Biden won, uh, you know, well into the upper 90s as far as a percentage uh, with uh, uh, his two uh, competitors uh, getting just about a point, point and a half each. And uh, so uh, things move on. Haley says he's not going to get out of the way uh, tomorrow, Tuesday already. It's the Michigan primary. And then Super Tuesday is uh, next Tuesday, a point at which Haley has said she, uh, you know, plans on staying in through then, uh, kind of hinting that, you know, she might analyze things after that. Uh, it depends how the how the funding goes too a lot in these uh, these matters, John. Yeah, Glenn. Uh, there's been some reports uh, that some of her major donors have uh, actually pulled the plug on uh, the funding of uh, Nikki Haley. So you got to wonder uh, what is her end game. I mean, she doesn't seem to have uh, a path. Yeah, it looks kind of tough right now with uh, Trump picking up uh, all four competitive states uh, so far. And, uh, you know, the the path looks similar in uh, most of the rest of the states that will be voting, uh, including Michigan tomorrow and then uh, for Super Tuesday uh, next week as well. Uh, some speculation, third-party possibilities are out there. Uh, also speculation on uh, Trump needing to, to shore up Haley voters uh, because while he won by 20 points, it still left, uh, you know, 40 40 points uh, in the Republican side not voting for him, and he'll need to pick up uh, some of those those votes uh, as an overall average to be able to beat uh, beat Biden in the fall. And I think uh, also he's got to figure a way to reach the independents. I think that's the, the big question. That's uh, something that Haley actually uh, did better than the former president uh, with uh, so far in, in – um, in the early going, I mean, that's what has been her strength, being able to uh, appeal to the independents. Yeah, analyzing it from the politics point of view, yeah, he'll, he'll need, uh, and so often, I mean, traditionally, uh, you know, either party will go kind of hard to one side to get the nomination and then kind of come back toward the middle a little bit to be more appealing in the, uh, the general election. But uh, both leading candidates, uh, Trump and Biden, have a lot of negatives uh, from from their people on both sides, and so 
I, I don't know that it's a it's a completely done deal yet. Depending who runs, I'm sure there'll be a, a significant third party presence uh, one way or the other this year with that many negatives on both the Republican and Democratic side. Uh, that, you know, just a few points could really tip the balance. And meanwhile, uh, big news this morning uh, from the Republican National Committee, uh, Glenn. Yeah, this has been speculated for a while here. Ronna McDaniel will be stepping down and uh, former President Trump uh, appointing GOP chair Michael Watley, basically, for the national job. And uh, so that's a change approved by by Trump there. They've had the, the party's had some trouble with fundraising, especially at the state level, too. Isn't that kind of unusual to have the uh, RNC uh, chairperson step down in the, in the middle of a presidential campaign? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, she's staying through Super Tuesday, which is you know a little over a week from now. But uh, yeah, it is. Do you think that after Super Tuesday, if Haley doesn't win any states, that uh, finally uh, uh, the the end will have come? Yeah, I think it will for that. And, uh, you know, word popped out that this uh, No Labels uh, group that's trying to get a strong third-party candidate is is interested. And uh, they've kind of mentioned that to anybody who's dropped out at this point. And so I think uh, that might be the point then. We start to see some more rumblings, at least, about a, a third-party candidate. No indication that, that Haley would, would be that person or not. But, uh, yeah, we'll see. Well, uh, we will keep an eye on it, of course. Uh, things... Uh, you know, it continue on. It's uh, it's it's been quite a, a struggle for Haley, and uh, she uh, doesn't seem like the type of person that wants to throw in the towel. But when it when it finally comes to it, she's going to have to. Yeah, and uh, you know, those fought mightily until they didn't. That dropped out earlier, right? Uh, it's uh, always uh, you know, I'm the best man or woman for the job, and he's no good. And then the the next minute, when they step out, they uh, they endorse often, not always, but often. You know, we saw the endorsement instantly from Ron DeSantis for Trump. Uh, uh, you didn't see that from Chris Christie, but uh, from many of the others. And uh, Tim Scott showing up on stages almost wherever uh, President Trump is these days as well. Yeah, lots of love between those two. Well, maybe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> lots of hope on, on, on behalf of Tim Scott, probably. All right. Um, on a much uh, uh, lighter note, uh, Legos in the news yeah. this morning. Talking Legos, somebody stole $1,000 worth of Lego toys from a Store in Pennsylvania, which uh, Sarah commented might be, you know, one or two boxes worth. But so, you know, some of those uh, Star Wars kits are, are pretty expensive nowadays. But I just got us thinking about Legos. And, and uh, I know as a kid, we had them. And then when my kids were little, they had them, which reinvigorated my love for them. And I think one of the best things we had was this big, flat, gray piece that could be the good base. I didn't have one of those. And then you could build all kinds of things. And suddenly... You know, here I am, you know, diving right in the middle and, you know, building these skyscraper landscapes and things like that. I just loved it. How about you guys? I loved Legos when I was a kid. I used to just spend hours building all kinds of stuff. But, yeah, the Legos are much more advanced now. And uh, and so when my Joseph was little, he he loved Legos as well. And uh, he's got, to this day, he still has boxes and boxes of Legos uh, of every kind. Uh, you could build a city with all the stuff he's got. And uh, no sign that he wants to get rid of them, even yeah. even as a, as a teenager. Well, I was thinking, Glenn, you're talking about that, that base. Man, I remember that base. I love that base. In fact, I had one of those bases, and that was the basis of my uh, Star Trek uh, Enterprise that I would have uh, the, the nice. d- divided into the different quarters of the ship. And nice. I. 
nice. worked very a long time on that. And I was kind of the lone ranger in my house that liked Legos. But now, oh gosh, everyone loves Legos. Uh, even Lucy likes to Legos. And she hasn't tried to eat any, which is surprising because they're <laughs> tiny. They're tiny. They're so oh, tiny. Yeah. They're like, you know, just like popping in tiny little uh, cracker or something. But um, there's so many tiny little pieces that... You know, they give you a couple extras, but what I want to know is how do they decide which of the pieces they will give you extras of and how many, how do they decide, eh, okay, they'll probably be okay because sometimes they're not always the tiniest little pieces and you're right, um, John, they are very intricate. They are, they, they're like almost, they have sometimes where they get a pullback and then the vehicle can move forward or they transformed. Man, they're getting very advanced nowadays or not it's not just you know just what it was before they keep trying to push the envelope when it comes to legos yeah uh, today you can build uh, very advanced fancy cars with windows and tires and it feels like you're actually putting a vehicle together yourself and with that manual oh it is still difficult it's not it's not any easier and if you get one of those big sets like what this person probably stole uh, you don't even get the whole booklet. They give you a QR code and say, hey, look it up because they're not wasting paper on the thousands of pages you need to put that thing together. It's, I don't know about that. My, my gut feeling is, is playing with Legos, you know, works your creativity and your imagination. I think it's actually better for young kids than, than being on a tablet. Uh, it works your frustration level as well as a parent because uh, some of these, they don't know how to do it because it's like hard to figure out. And you know what? When you're in you're in the groove, you're getting several steps and sometimes you're doing the step wrong. So when you're the problem solver, you have to say, okay, go back five steps. Which one did you do wrong? And that's why it doesn't work. It can be extremely challenging. So actually maybe a good project for Lent because you work on a lot of virtues um, while you're putting those Lego sets together. I always right. loved some of the cool pieces, we, the, the window pieces, whether they were just straight up clear or a couple pieces that looked like a window. That was what was fancy back in dinosaur times. Now, <laughs> with all the, the Lego people are like the cutest ever. And, and by the way, uh, of course, they make a great security device, too. If you want to keep parents out of the room at night when they're barefoot, you know, just scatter a few in front of your door and, and you're good. But uh, the bad guy, he made up with five boxes of Legos, oh, okay. $1,000 worth. And, and here's the, the quote from the story. Police hoping to put all the pieces together uh, and track down the suspect. Nice. So there you <laughs> no, go. No yeah. pun intended. <laughs> all right. As always, uh, thanks, uh, Glenn and Sarah. More next hour. All right. Uh, we begin every morning in prayer, as we always do, uh, giving thanks to our Lord for all the many blessings. And we always pray through the intercession of the Mother of God, our Blessed Mother Mary, as we continue to pray for peace in the world, especially in the Middle East and in Ukraine. Peace in our nation, peace in our church and in our families. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, patroness of the Americas, patroness of the unborn and of relevant radio, pray for us. St. Joseph, patron of the Universal Church, pray for us. St. John Paul II, co-patron of relevant radio, pray for us. And we, we invoke the Holy Spirit every morning here on the show when we pray, Come, Holy Spirit, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our power scripture from the playbook of life this morning is from Luke 6.36. Jesus the Lord says, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. 
Pope St. John Paul II, in his encyclical Davis in Misericordia, Rich in Mercy, wrote, Jesus Christ taught that man not only receives and experiences the mercy of God, but that he's also called to practice mercy towards others. Divine mercy is God's greatest attribute. His mercy endures forever, and it's like an ocean of mercy. As uh, the Lord told St. Faustina, the greater the sinner, the greater the right he has to my mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And we always pray with great confidence that prayer that Drew and Maggie pray every afternoon during the Chapel of Divine Mercy. Jesus, I trust in you. You can send us an email directly. It's morningair at relevantradio.com. You can also find us on social media. Our handle on X, formerly Twitter, at Morning Air Show, as well as on Facebook. We need to take a short break. When we come back, journalist Anatoly Babinski, a research fellow at the Institute of Church History at Ukrainian Catholic University, will be with us to discuss the two-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine, which we just uh, celebrated just a couple of days ago this past weekend. So stay with us as uh, this Monday edition of Morning Air continues on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. along with Glenn and Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us on this Monday morning here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. I'm so glad you could make us a part of your morning. You can always send us an email directly. It's morningair at relevantradio.com. And our toll-free line, if you want to be part of the program, 888-914-9149, sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters. That's 888-914-9149. Now, this past Saturday, February 24th, marked two years since Russian forces attacked Ukraine. Ukrainian President Zelensky welcomed Western leaders to Kyiv on Saturday to mark the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion as Ukrainian forces continue to run low on ammunition and foreign aid hangs in the balance. Zelensky spoke to Fox News in anticipation of the two-year anniversary. Putin has to understand what we, what all of us, what we have to do to push him. He has to understand that all the world needs peace and all the world will not give him possibility to occupy Ukraine and to destroy it totally what he really wanted and still wants. Our next guest was on the ground in Ukraine until August of last year. And since then, uh, he's uh, back in the U.S. and uh, is uh, with us this morning uh, to share his experiences and perspective of this war. Joining us live from South Bend, Indiana, is journalist Dr. Anatoly Babinski, a research fellow at the Institute of Church History at the Ukrainian Catholic University, for a perspective on this two-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Good morning, Dr. Babinski. Uh, welcome back to Morning Air. Thanks so much uh, for joining us once again. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Dr. Babinski, you were with us uh, here on Relevant Radio early on in this war. Uh, can you believe it's 
already been two years uh, since uh, the invasion and the start of the war in, in Ukraine. Yeah, you know, first of all, I would like to thank to all Americans for their support, uh, because Ukrainians deeply appreciate this support, and without this support, uh, it will be very hard, it will be very hard to uh, resist the Russian, ag- Russian aggression. So, um, as to your question, you know, for me, it still seems very surreal that uh, today, when we have, uh, you know, 21st century, uh, we have a, such a full-scale war in Europe. Uh, and uh, I think that for many, many Ukrainians, uh, it's, it still is surreal. We can't believe that uh, this is happening. Uh, but, of course, we need to remember also that the war started not two years ago. In fact, it started in 2014 when Russian tanks appeared on the streets of Donetsk and uh, Luhansk and also uh, the Crimean Peninsula was uh, uh, annexed. But uh, that war, that phase of of the war was a so-called proxy war. Uh, The world didn't believe uh, that uh, it might be a a full-scale war, but uh, uh, for people who lived, uh, on the front line in eastern Ukraine, uh, the war, real war, started 10 years ago. Uh, but today, um, it is surreal, but at the same time, people, uh, you know, the war came into every house in Ukraine. Uh, in every family, you have someone who was conscripted or mobilized to the military forces. So uh, Ukraine is, you know, in every house now. Uh, so uh, people are very, very tired now. Well, it's really uh, hard to believe, like you said, surreal, because uh, there were many who speculated that uh, this uh, phase of the war uh, was only going to last you know, a short time, maybe a couple of weeks, and here we are uh, just uh, entering uh, year three. Um, what was your, your reaction, your thoughts on uh, the, the many G7 uh, leaders and, and other Western leaders who showed up uh, in their support of Ukraine uh, this past weekend in Kyiv to mark that two-year anniversary? Yes, uh, we, as I said before, we really appreciate the support and we really very, very deeply thankful to the whole world that uh, supports us. Uh, so, uh, for Ukrainians, this support means that we can still, you know, keep our resilience against this, uh, uh, against this aggressor. Uh, and, um, you know, my first thoughts also were when, you know, when the war started that uh, it um, maybe would last uh, for a month or for a few weeks because we understood very well that uh, our uh, uh, Russia's, uh, our you know, opponent in this war, so it's very uh, has a very you know strong army. Uh, they boasted that they had the second army in the world. Uh, so for us, it looked like there is no chance uh, to uh, resist uh, Russia's aggression. But still today we fight uh, and uh, we deoccupied, I think, the half of the territory which was occupied after the 24th of February 2022. 
and uh, uh, today you know uh, of course there is a lack of weapon there is a uh, lack of ammunition on the front line and we can see that uh, some territories were occupied during the last months but uh, and ukrainians are of course tired but still uh, the, everybody in ukraine i think most of the population uh, understands that uh, there is no way back uh, and the reason is that there is no room for compromise today because uh, if your uh, opponent if your if the other side denies the very existence of your nation uh, there can be no room for a compromise because people they see what is happening on the occupied territories uh, so um, people who have a pro ukrainian position or uh, keep uh, ukrainian passport they are deported into Siberia, so like it was in 19th century, what Russia did to Ukrainians, like before, in previous centuries, people are killed, persecuted, people are deported. So everybody in Ukraine understands that uh, that might happen also in other on other territories if uh, Russia will uh, uh, occupy uh, another parts of Ukraine. So that's why we we still fight so because this is a, a, a fight not for you know this is a war not about territories but about the very existence of ukrainian nation well dr babinski um, you were there in ukraine for almost three quarters of the length of uh, of this war so far um can you share with us a little bit of what you saw some of your experiences on on the ground uh, during this horrible war Yes, but you know, you must understand that I lived uh, and I, I live in the western part of Ukraine. So now I'm in the U.S. because uh, I am on my postdoc at the Notre Dame University, but my uh, homeland is uh, western Ukraine. So in western Ukraine, uh, the war is not so intensive. Uh, uh, so from time to time, uh, some missiles uh, attacked uh, um, different, uh, um, you know, infrastructures or uh, power plants in our region uh, or different um, factories. But uh, the war is not so close in Western Ukraine. Uh, but we can see, uh, of course, uh, via the uh, TV. But uh, there are a lot of refugees still. There are a lot of refugees and displaced persons in Western Ukraine because people lost their homes in Eastern Ukraine and also sometimes in, in Central Ukraine uh, because a part of Kyiv region, uh, the capital of Ukraine was occupied and people, uh, uh, so they, they have no place uh, to return. Uh, so there are a lot of refugees uh, and uh, so... Uh, they 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 are trying to adapt their lives uh, to new circumstances they have no place to return and of course uh, the every day every day uh, you have this funeral masses in different different churches uh, predominantly uh, in the churches where there is a military chaplaincy so our uh, uh, cemeteries uh, now are you know, have a lot of a lot of graves of new Ukrainian heroes. Uh, so you can you can feel it every day because you can see these uh, funeral processions on the streets. So it, it is very very sad 
and uh, um, we. It's, it's hard today, of course, uh, because I, my relatives are still in Ukraine. My parents, they live also in Western Ukraine. Uh, there is not too much hope, uh, you know, uh, as it was uh, a year ago, maybe. But uh, as I said before, people, uh, they don't see no way out. So we, need, we, we don't have uh, no way back. Do you think uh, that uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky... Um still has the resolve uh, to win this war, even though so many people do not feel hope. Uh, um, he, he, he hasn't shown any signs uh, that he's ready to, uh, to give up. You think it's time to start looking at a peace plan? No. Uh, you know, and you must understand, this is not a war of President Zelensky. This is a war of Ukrainian society and of Ukrainian military, of Ukrainian nation. Uh, so uh, despite what Zelensky might wish or think, uh, you know, we are a democratic country and he was elected by the Ukrainian society, not, you know, like in Russia, you have, you know, the name of the president in advance. Uh, so this is a war of Ukrainian society and Zelensky, uh, he... He wills very well what is happening in society. Yes, I, I, I said that there is not much hope, but still people uh, are still resilient because this is a war for the very existence of Ukraine. And uh, uh, due to the polls, to the recent polls, sociological, a lot of people are open to the diplomatic solution of this conflict, of this war. But at the same time, they say that uh, uh, we, we, we don't want to, you know, to give up our territories, not just territories, but people, uh, because people are persecuted and uh, there is a mass deportation, forceful deportation on the occupied territories. So the society wants to, you know, to, to, to still uh, want to fight and to deoccupy our uh, people, our territories. So uh, we will fight because, yes, we feel the lack of uh, ammunition, of weapon, but we still hope that this help will come uh, sooner or later, but of course better sooner uh, than later. Uh, so people are still resilient. Here in the beginning of year three of the war, uh, where do you see uh, this war uh, going? Uh, what, what is your gut feeling as to what's, what's going to happen next? I think that we will see, uh, you know, a lot of losses, of course. But I think that we will see a counteroffensive uh, also by Ukrainian forces. I know that uh, our uh, military chiefs, they prepare a new counteroffensive because we need to deoccupy our territories. Uh, because people are suffering, and also you can't you can't have a just peace without you know uh, without the uh, uh, occupation of Ukrainian territories. Because uh, this war will last for decades, if uh, and there will be no just peace if Ukrainian territories uh, will be under occupation. Well, Dr. Babinski, I really appreciate you uh, b being with us here this morning. Um, we uh, we continue to pray uh, for an end to this war and to pray for the, the Ukrainian people. Thank you.
That is uh, journalist Dr. Anatoly Babinski, research fellow at the Institute of Church History at Ukrainian Catholic University. Uh, we need to take a short pause. Uh, when Morning Air continues, Dr. Eric Wallace, the president and co-founder of Freedom's Journal Institute, uh, will be with us to discuss uh, some of the issues that matter most in the black community as uh, we uh, honor Black History Month. Uh, so stay with us. There is uh, much more to come on this Monday edition of Morning Air here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Franklin, uh, respect uh, from 1976 to set the stage for our discussion on Black History Month. Welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales along with Glenn and Sarah. Thanks uh, so much for joining us on this Monday here on Relevant Radio and the new Relevant Radio app. Now, throughout the month of February, in recognition of Black History Month, people of all races and faiths across the U.S. celebrate black Americans and their stories. It's important to talk about the issues affecting the black community and to address them in the proper way. In fact, the theme for Black History Month uh, this year is African Americans and the arts. Toll-free line if you want to be part of the program, 888-914-9149, sponsored by the Catholic Order of of foresters. Joining us live this morning from the Chicago area is Dr. Eric Wallace, the president and co-founder of Freedom's Journal Institute uh, to talk about uh, Black History Month and some of the issues that are uh, important to the black community. Dr. Uh, Wallace is also the host of Kingdoms in Conflict, uh, a matter of uh, faith, race, and public policy, a national TV production of Freedom's Journal Institute. Good morning, Dr. Wallace. Uh, thanks so much uh, for joining us. It's uh, great to be with you once again. Thank you for inviting me back, John. I appreciate it. Well, uh, why should uh, Black History Month be important to uh, uh, people of goodwill, people of faith, especially uh, to, to Catholics and other Christians? Uh, you know, that's a that's a loaded question because it's, it's debated among, especially among conservative blacks. We feel like uh, black history is actually a part of American history and shouldn't be separated out. But since you asked the question, <laughs> I think I think it's I think it's incumbent upon all Americans to know the contribution of other Americans, right? Hispanic Americans, Black Americans, Asian Americans, everyone who who comes under that rubric of, of American, because we're one nation under God, right? Individual with liberty and justice for all. So uh, it's it's incumbent upon us to know, you know, our history and to know it well, not just. Um, you know, a few of the white guys that we like to talk about from time to time, but everybody, you know, so we know the richness of our history. And when people start trying to tear down our uh, country, I mean, we have some blemishes in our history, you know, no doubt, but so does every other country <laughs> around the world, right? No country has had a perfect, perfect history. Um, they all had blemishes, but the good thing about America is that we've, we've learned to go beyond those things that, that have happened, such as slavery and Jim Crow and, you know, in, internment camps for Japanese and, and other, and other things like that. 
Uh, absolutely. And, you know, Black History Month uh, here in, in 2024, the, the theme is uh, African-Americans and the arts. And uh, when you think of the arts, uh, there are some uh, notable b- black leaders uh, throughout the years uh, that have stood out in all different areas of, of uh, life, not just the arts, but in every arena. Right, right. And actually, um, uh, Harlem, I think of Harlem Renaissance, and I think of actually my grandfather. My grandfather was a famous painter, William Edward Scott, my mother's my mother's father. And uh, he'd done some murals in the uh, Chicagoland area in some of the schools. He's painted some presidents. He's, he's, uh, um, he was well-known for his, he's one of the um, well-known black artists who, who came up during that time. William Edward Scott. In fact, my middle name is Edward after my grandfather. That's a, be- a beautiful thing. I-, I hope you enjoyed that little bit of uh, Aretha Franklin, uh, you, one, of, one of the all-time greats. There's so many uh, I- incredible and so talented uh, black people, uh, in, in, especially in the performing arts uh, arena, that have uh, contributed to our American culture. Absolutely. Um, blues, um, different, different genres, uh, gospel music, different genres of, of, of music um, that blacks have accelerated in. I, I think part of, part of that is because in, in, you know, back in the day when a lot of doors were closed to us, that was one of the doors that was open being musical and be able to sing and write and, and to entertain. Um, and we kind of excelled in that. And then when sports kind of opened up, um, started to excel in that as well. I think one of the issues as as we look forward, we go forward is trying to get especially young people starting to look beyond uh, just the entertainment aspect and, you know, become doctors and lawyers and, and, uh, you know, um, you know, whatever else is out there, you know, um, you know, Ben Carson and the you know, neurosurgeon, you know, uh, instead of that, that being the exception, make that start to be the, be the norm. I know um, real quickly that, that uh, Charles Barkley once said when he goes into schools in the black schools, he says that the, Ask the black kids what they want to do be when they grow up, and a lot of them talk about playing basketball or being a rap artist or something like that. He goes to the white schools and they talk about being doctors and lawyers and and you know stuff like that. And he said it just breaks his heart because there's you know it's limited amount of space in the entertainment world and limited amount of people who actually make it, especially we're talking about sports. Well, where, what is the state, um, Dr. Wallace, of uh, black conservatives? Uh, I know it, it is a, a minority uh, compared to uh, to the masses, uh, but it's still significant. It is. It is. And uh, there's a lot more of us out here than, than the mainstream media would like you to know. Matter of fact, I just got through reading two books. Uh, one is called Steadfast Democrats, and the other one is called Conservative but Not Republican. And both of those books written by Democrats, by the way, are looking at how the Democrat Party has actually been able to hold on to the black vote, um, even though the black community pretty much is conservative on most of the issues that, John, you and I are conservative on, right? Pro-life, guns, um, uh, you know, whether people should have voter IDs, things like that. They're actually conservative on that. Um, And so it's incumbent upon, at least as far as I'm concerned, that's why we put Freedom Journal Institute together was to try and galvanize the black conservative community. And that once um, other blacks who are conservative, but don't vote their values would see that there are a lot more of us out here 
than we're than we're given credit for, and make it easier for people then you know to to come out of the closet, if you will, and to say, yeah, I'm a conservative and I'm going to vote my values. Right now, people are afraid to do so because they're afraid of being canceled, afraid of being ostracized, and they'll be accused of not caring about the black community. That we got to suffer together, we got to stick together. And as far as I'm concerned, none of the leaders in in these in the black liberal movement have been uh, voted on by any of us. They're just kind of, you know, propped up there by white liberals. I want to open up the the phone lines and invite our listeners, if you have a comment or a question for Dr. Eric Wallace uh, about uh, Black History Month and maybe some of the issues uh, that are affecting the black community, we're taking your calls at 888-914-9149, 888 914 What about uh, the... Uh, uh, the black agenda that, uh, you know, a, a lot of people don't realize that when they're supporting it, they're actually supporting a very uh, liberal mindset and a, a, a real woke agenda. Yeah. Uh, um, so when you say that, I guess you're talking about the black liberal. Uh, I would add liberal agenda because there's a there's a black conservative agenda. Which is which is totally different. So the black liberal agenda is about reparations. It's about continued victimhood. It's about continuing to call people racist and try to, you know, work on white guilt. Right. Uh, the conservative agenda is trying to fix families, uh, try to get better education for our kids, and uh, you know, wealth accumulation. You know, you know, buying property, um, uh, or what we have called in uh, Freedom's Journal Institute, we call the RISE principles, responsible government, individual liberty and fidelity, strong family values, and economic empowerment. And so it's understanding how we, how government works, how it's supposed to get out of our way for us to go out and do what it is that God has called us to do. And that everyone who's created in the image of God, which is everybody, has certain gifts and talents. And they're supposed to use those gifts and talents to be able to take care of their family and, and, to, and, and to build a legacy they can lead to their children and then to their children's children. And so that's, there's, there's a big gulf between what black liberals want and what black conservatives want. Do you think um, more black people will be voting more conservative here during this election year than ever before? That's really a good question, John. I, I don't know. We're trying to do our part to at least get people to understand what it means to be conservative. You know, we've got the Black Conservative Summit in May, uh, May 2nd through the 5th, um, excuse me, 2nd through the 4th in Washington, D.C. Um, we're having a number of black conservatives come out and talk about the various issues. Actually, the theme is cultural Marxism versus a biblical worldview. And actually, let me go back. It's black America at a crossroads. Uh, cultural Marxism versus uh, a biblical worldview. So trying to get people, to, especially those who, who call themselves children of God, who are following Christ, to actually vote their values. It's, it's, it's tough. Uh, and I don't know, I think sometimes um, the, the, the former president, um, sometimes he opens his mouth and he makes it so difficult <laughs> for people like me to... Uh, to, to, to run and say, hey, we need to be voting our values, vote conservative, um, when every now and then, and I don't think he meant any harm by what he said the other day um, at the uh, at the conference where he was, but it ends up getting twisted by the left to make everybody believe that the Republicans are racist, they don't care about black people, 
and you need to stay clear of them. And so that's the that's one of the difficulties in trying to get folks to say, start looking beyond the accusations from the left and actually look at what is actually taking place, the actual policies that are being put in place. So people vote for policies and not necessarily personality. Well, one of the issues that's uh, important in every election cycle uh, for Catholics and uh, many other Christians is the issue of uh, the sanctity of life. Uh, how is abortion affecting the black community? Well, as you know, black community is like 13%. And I think the of the population, at least, uh, I don't know about the recent uh, census, but in past people says like 13, 12%, 13%. And yet we account for like 40% of the abortions. And so in some places we got more babies dying than are being born. I think it's New York. And so it's still a problem. Still have abortion clinics being uh, uh, opened up in the black communities. Um, And now it's, you know, it's not about abortion anymore, John. It's about women's health, right? (laughs) So they kind of disguise it under, you know, women's health. And so it's a big issue. It's a big issue. And now it's gone to the state's. Um, we need to fight the fight within the states and say not only are is the left trying to kill our babies babies in the womb, but they're also trying to disfigure them so they can't have children. So you you got babies dying in the womb, and then you've got the left trying to tell our children that our boys can be girls and girls can be boys, and they mutilate themselves so they can't have children. Period. Right. So you talk about diabolical. It's it's a diabolic scheme. To try and kill off um, and to castrate a generation of people who will never have who will never have children, either via abortion or by getting mutilated themselves. Do you, do you see a, a connection uh, to uh, the epidemic of uh, no fathers in so many uh, black families? Is, is that being a root of of some of these issues? Oh, I think so. I think you can you can trace it back 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 to um, the lack of fathers in the home. Because if you look at what happened before there, before there was uh, um, any civil rights legislation gone forth, the black family, I think from the 40s and the 40s and 50s, before the Civil Rights Act, you had two-parent households. Uh, most black children were born in two-parent, two-parent households. They were doing as well in school as most white kids. They were getting jobs at the same rate that most white kids were getting jobs. It wasn't until the government decided to come help that all of a sudden the black family started to fall apart. And we started trusting in Uncle Sam instead of, you know, getting married. So... Well, love to get your your final thoughts uh, here as um, we take a moment uh, to uh, talk about uh, Black History Month. Well, like I said, I think Black History Month, we need to talk about it. Um... Our, our organization is called Freedom's Journal Institute. It was named after the first black newspaper, Freedom's Journal. So we try to even attend our nonprofit organization to black history. But we need to understand that our black history, some of our history is so much better than what we're doing right now. That's the irony of it. When things were worse for black people, many blacks were doing better. So uh, we need to take a real hard look at what happened in the past and what's happening today and then try to figure out how we can get back to some of that. Not not the prejudice, but how we get back to um, uh, being successful and making uh, carrying out a legacy for our children. 
once again, you have the Black uh, Conservative Summit coming up in May. Uh, where, where can our listeners go if they want to learn more about it? Uh, BlackConservativeSummit.net. BlackConservativeSummit.net. And that'll take you to a welcome page and everything is there. They can find out about you know where it is, what time it is, how much it costs, and some of the speakers uh, that have confirmed and some of the speakers we're still waiting to hear back from. Eric, uh, as always, uh, a joy to be with you. Thank, thanks uh, for uh, joining us here uh, th- this morning. Thank you, John. God bless. Dr. Eric Wallace, the president and uh, co-founder of Freedom's Journal Institute. And now it's time for another episode of Glenn Story Corner. Our story today is called The Accidents by Rob Shefferts. A few years ago, a tragic accident happened on the back roads of our region. A Christian man, a humble servant of the Lord, a sweet husband to his devoted wife, and a terrific dad to a couple of dynamic tweens, was hit head-on by a drunk driver. He died on impact. The other driver survived the ordeal and was facing heavy criminal charges. Public opinion was that this guy should rot in prison. No mercy for such an offense. The mourning family, however, was not a normal, everyday, typically common kind of family. They were close to one another through an invincible bond called divine love. They got together and pondered out loud, what would Jesus do in our circumstances? One thing they knew for certain was their master would not linger in self-pity and unforgiveness. They were convinced they had to reach out somehow to the guilty driver. Early one morning, the son and daughter of the victimized dad went down to the prison to visit the driver. To the utter amazement of the guards, although both son and daughter were deep in grief, they hugged the man and forgave him for his actions. The surprised criminal couldn't stop his emotions from overcoming him. He crumbled to his knees and started to cry. Instead of a fist in his face, which was what he expected and knew he deserved, he received mercy. He received love instead of utter contempt. He received divine grace instead of condemnation. Surprisingly, both the son and daughter visited the prisoner regularly. They had truly forgiven the one who had killed their dad. One of God's greatest desires is we show mercy toward one another. From Hosea 6.6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. As always, thanks so much, Glenn. Coming up next hour on Morning Air, our spiritual director, Father Burke Masters, will be with us to continue his B-Form series and talk about the Eucharist and the Holy Trinity. Plus, a Catholic speaker, podcaster, and faith coach, Kendra Von Ash will join us to discuss how to fight temptations during this Lenten season. So stay with us. There is much more to come in hour number two on this Monday edition of Morning Air here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app.